Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. Hello. Simone, we are back. And, you know, it had been way too long before I checked in with my bird people and had my audience. It was only a matter of time. Only a matter of time. Well, and they've had so much going on that I wanted to check in with some familiar and new faces and and just hear about all things that are going on um, in the world of Audubon. Um, But first, we've had a lot of news happen since our last um, show. So I know um, there's a big announcement that came yesterday afternoon about the LA one, um, you know, roadway and, and uh, actually getting funding. So I know you're a lot more closely connected to that world. So why don't you give us uh, an overview of the exciting news? So Restore Retreat and and another organization called the LA One Coalition are closely linked. We're actually modeled after the LA One Coalition that they focused on one issue and just have been working on the issue to elevate the highway from um, Golden Meadow uh, all the way to Grand Isle, actually. Um, Even this past uh, tropical storm, Crystal Ball, it was underwater and the road was closed for a while. And that was happening more and more frequently. Um, and it, of course, blocks access to our inhabited barrier island and, of course, all the work that happens in Port Fouchon, which in recent years also included hundreds of millions of dollars of restoration work. And so um, the they had eight miles left to build. The portions of it had been elevated. They had eight miles left to build. And yesterday they received a major award from the federal government called an Infra Award, and it told a totaled $135 million. And so they will add that with $150 million in economic damages um, from the BP oil spill. And then they're raising uh, 50 plus million dollars uh, through different funding sources. And so that road will be 22 feet in the air. Um, so no more danger of, uh, of becoming inundated. So that is excellent news for the LA1 coalition. But, you know, Jacques, that's a lot of people that will be put to work. And so that's really great. It's going to have a long construction time, um, but that's going to put hundreds, if not thousands of people to work. And so that's always good news these days. Yeah, and definitely, you know, you mentioned Cristobal, but, uh, you know, it was uh, the road was susceptible just during regular tidal flooding. So um, huge congrats to the LA1 Coalition and our friend Honoré Boulay on, you know, that important milestone. And I know you'll be keeping us up to date. Um, Speaking of funding, um, you know, I know that the regular session for Louisiana's legislature has closed and they're now in special session. But we've had some news um, that we highlighted prior with Emily Buxton on a bill that would fund some coastal work in Louisiana. So give us the latest update on that. Right. So just for a short recap, there's um, there was some funding that was made available to coastal um, projects because we had a surplus in previous years. And that money can only be spent on certain things, uh, one-time uses, and coastal's one of them. And so um, because of the unsure economic times we were in, um, some of the legislators wanted to pull back some of that surplus funding and be conservative. And that was going to impact the Louisiana coastal 
program to the tune of about $117 million. And so, you know, you can imagine that's that's quite a blow. Um, that's a tenth of our entire annual plan. Um, and so um, there, through some works and uh, some hard work of the CPRA and some negotiations on the Senate side, uh, they were able to put back uh, nearly all, not, not quite all of the money, but a good majority of the money um, for coastal projects. And that includes a very important West Shore Protection Project, um, other coastal restoration projects, uh, Nichols Coastal Center, a few other projects like that. And so um, so it's good to see that that coastal still remains a priority of the Louisiana legislature. Well, you know, that is exciting. And, and speaking about jobs and economic opportunities, a lot of these projects are shovel ready. And Absolutely. one of the points that um, our groups emphasized is like, look, um, these will provide jobs and economic stimulus at a time when our state desperately needs that. So good to see that that work continues and, and kudos to all the folks who made sure that that funding stayed um, for our coast. So, well, let's get to our guest. Um, you know, I think he is in the running with our friend Alicia Renfro for most frequent guest, or if he's not, he's, he's trying to be. Um, welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Eric Johnson, Director of Bird Conservation um, with Audubon, Louisiana and the National Audubon Society. Welcome back, Eric. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Jacques. Hi, Simone. Thanks for having me back. Hi, Eric. Welcome back. How have you been? It's been a while since we've talked to you. How have you and your family been? We've been good. Thanks for asking. Um, you know, we moved to Sunset, a little town north of Lafayette, uh, just over a year ago. And so we've managed to hide out here and stay healthy um, and really kind of just take advantage of this, you know, horrible pandemic to get to know our property a little bit better. We've been doing some gardening and all kinds of fun stuff like that. So we've been we've been hanging in there. Sunset population of is sunset population of two. Well, do you have some dogs too, right? Or a dog? (laughs) Yeah, we have two dogs and now two horses. And yeah, so we have a little, a little homestead farm going on here. So Eric, um, one of the things Simone and I have highlighted um, since, you know, the stay at home orders is the opportunity for folks to get out and experience nature. And certainly we've talked a little bit about backyard birding. So I know Audubon has done a lot to highlight how people can be connected to birds and to nature from their own backyards. So we're heading into summer break or, you know, many people are on summer break. Any tips for how parents can keep their kids occupied by birding this summer? Yeah, birding has turned out to be one of the perfect social distancing activities. It's something you can do absolutely anywhere, including your own backyard, your neighborhood, your local park. Um, And of course, there's just tons of birds in Louisiana to enjoy from chickadees and tanagers um, and and bluebirds and meadowlarks and herons and egrets. And so it's just a really fun uh, thing to do to get outside for a little bit. Um, Just being in nature helps you reset. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your physical health. Um, and so it can be a really nice family activity for people just to get outdoors and start to learn something new that maybe they haven't had the opportunity to experience before. That's great. And I know Audubon has provided a number of webinars, I believe, on backyard birding, another one on, on purple martins that is coming up or has happened recently. So um, can folks stay involved and informed about ways to enjoy birds uh, during this time? By How can people do that through Audubon? 
Yeah. So one way is just to uh, get signed up for our email list so you can you can hear about these webinars and other events um, before they happen. Um, and you can visit us at la.audubon.org to sign up for that. Um, and we also record all of those webinars. So there's a, an archive of them on the website as well. Um, so and of course, you know, as you know, hopefully once COVID really starts to get under control and lift, um, you know, we're all about um, working with volunteers and, and working with people outside and introducing them to the outdoors. So, you know, over the coming months and, and, and years, really, there will we'll be, you know, offering plenty more opportunities to get involved. Um, of course, with COVID right now, we have to just be very careful and, and, and cognizant of people's safety. So we're trying to do a lot of things digitally these days, um, but we still have our biologists and our conservation teams working on the ground, um, our policy people doing work. So we're, we've, we've stayed really busy um, during this period. It's just been you know a little bit more isolated than, than we normally would work. Eric, I know, um, you know, as it gets warmer and people get a little stir crazy, they're eager to get outside, including to beaches. Um, you know, we've only got a minute left, but can you remind folks, you know, if they're going to the beach, how can they keep beach nesting birds uh, safe during this time? Right. Yeah. And so from April through um, August, really, birds are nesting on our on our coastal beaches and they lay their eggs on the ground. Um, it takes them weeks to incubate those eggs. It takes weeks for the chicks to fly. Um, and so our teams are actually out there posting the sensitive nesting areas, uh, particularly where there are people visiting the beach. And so if you see those signs and the, those fenced areas, it's important just to stay away. Um, you know, we segment off just a part of the beach uh, so that these birds have an opportunity to raise their young. Um, without getting disturbed by people and dogs and, and all the activities that go on while visiting the beach. All right. Well, that's a great reminder. And of course, you can find more on Audubon's website. We'll be right back with Eric Johnson after the break. back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. I have the coastal voice of the week. Evelyn from Lake Charles says, we cannot afford to lose any more of Louisiana's coastline. We need to continue to support our coastal restoration work so that Louisiana will be here for generations to come. Thank you, Evelyn. Just a reminder, you can add your coastal voice at MississippiRiverDelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast. Awesome. Well, welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Eric Johnson, Director of Bird Conservation with Audubon, Louisiana and the National Audubon Society. Um, Eric, I'm sure you're well aware, but we ask a fun question to each of our guests on the show. Um, so my question to you should be pretty straightforward. Um, what is the best bird you've seen during this stay-at-home period? Ooh, that is a tough one. So um, I am lucky in that I have a fruiting mulberry tree in the backyard that brought in hundreds of cedar waxwings virtually every day for a month. Um, but I think the best bird that I saw coming to that tree was probably a scarlet tanager. Uh, it's a bright red bird, like a cardinal, but with a jet black wing and jet black tail. It's just a stunning bird and we only get to see him during migration. So 
So that that's was really funny. Nice. Well, if Eric. Eric is excited about a bird, you know that's a big deal. And you know, 99% of other people would have just called him a cardinal, <laughs> you know, with a different... So that's interesting <laughs> that you have a mulberry bush. We don't have... Like, that's not something you hear a lot about in South Louisiana or mulberries. So that's pretty neat. Um, yeah. Well, I if think- you go to Grand Isle, that's one of the places you got to go stake out a mulberry tree during migration. And that's where you see a lot of the birds. Oh, that's interesting. So do you eat mulberries like blueberries? Can you eat them? Yeah, you yeah. can. They're totally, yeah, they're, they're sweet. You can make muffins out of them, pies. They're, they're delicious. Very neat. Very neat. Well, speaking of Grand Isle, they took quite a whooping, right, during the last tropical storm. We were just talking about that earlier in terms of of, um, LA-1. But Eric, let's talk about how um, tropical storm Cristobal affected birds and and nesting Mm -hmm. shorebirds. So it hit during the peak nesting season for many species. Tell us about the impact of that storm on the birding community. Yeah, I mean, the, the timing of this storm really couldn't have been any worse. Um, lease turns in particular were really hard hit. Uh, they begin nesting in late April, um, and it takes them three weeks to hatch their hatch the eggs. And then the chicks take three weeks um, or more to, to begin flying. So they really need like six to seven weeks of, of storm-free, um, you know, activity. And, you know, many of the the... The, the nests were washed out um, and, and same with the chicks. And so in like coastal Mississippi was particularly hard hit. They had five feet of storm surge and every single least turn nest, about 1600 of them across the coast of Mississippi were washed out. And the impacts of the storm were felt all the way to uh, as far as San Marco Island in South Florida on Saturday. Um, where it washed out uh, black skimmer colonies, other turn colonies. So from San Marco, uh, Florida, all the way through the Florida Panhandle, Alabama, Mississippi, and southeastern Louisiana, um, we're just devastated with uh, in, in terms of ground nesting birds like terns and plovers. So it was it was pretty hard hit. But we do know from the Caminata Headlands that the project that was. Uh, restored about three years ago where there still is some elevation about a quarter of the nests and chicks were able to survive they were high enough Um, so it really you know goes to show just how important these coastal restoration projects are for birds um, particularly in providing them that additional elevation so they're safe from these kinds of storms so eric that there's some hope there right so Anything that can be done in the future or anything more positive following a storm like that? Well, it's hard to spin a positive, you know, twist to these kinds of things. I mean, we know that these kinds of storms are coming more frequently and they're more intense earlier in the season because of climate change and sea level rise. So that's a lot of a lot of um, a lot of the issue. But, you know, coastal restoration is is super helpful for these birds. And the good news is that these birds will because it was so early in the nesting season, they'll have an opportunity to re-nest. So we're already seeing that with the least turn colony that was on Grand Isle that was basically completely washed out. It is re-nesting and it is re-nesting on the Caminata headlands. Um, and so that is really encouraging and fingers crossed that we just don't have another storm like this for another month, you know, another couple months, at least to give the birds that sort of second chance in the nesting season. Um, and of course, these are long-lived birds too, so they don't need to be successful every year in order to sustain the population. So as long as we don't have these kinds of events every year or every other year or even every three years, um, you know, the birds definitely have a fighting chance. 
So yeah, there's just, you know, it, it, these are just part of the, part of the issues of kind of living on the edge of the edge of the earth, so to speak. These birds are susceptible to storms and it's just built into their system. Um, so, you know, with, with our help, um, with protection of those islands and the, and the restoration of those islands, I think these birds still have a fighting chance. So Eric, I mean, that's such an important reminder of why we need to give birds the space to nest on our beaches, whether it's on Caminata, Grand Isle. I mean, a lot of these nesting colonies were, you know, wiped out by a storm and now they're having an opportunity to renest. So can you just one more time remind people why um, and how they can share the beach with birds if they're going to go to places like Grand Isle or Elmer's Island or Rutherford Beach, you know, in Southwest Louisiana or even coastal Mississippi, what can they do to help these birds recover from this storm? Right. No, that's, that's an excellent point. And because they are, these birds are so susceptible to so many different kinds of threats like storms, but also predators, coyotes and ghost crabs, um, adding the human disturbance onto the pressures that they face. It can be, can be really problematic for the birds. So Audubon from Texas all the way to Florida works on the coast and, and identifies the sensitive nesting areas and they'll put up signs around the, those, those sensitive areas just reminding people, you know, to stay away. So if you see those signs while visiting the beach, um, you know, do your best to, to stay away from them, keep your dogs on the leash so they don't go running into the colony and disturb the birds um, and just give the birds the space. And, and you know, it, there, there's plenty of, of beach out there for us to be able to share with the birds and to still enjoy um, all the things that people enjoy when going to the beach. So um, just a matter of sort of being aware of that and, 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 you know, seeing those signs and, and kind of respecting what's going on. Eric, before, um, this spring, we heard so much about the restoration of Queen Bess and how the pelicans were doing. There was even an email news blast last week about how one of the pelicans, um, from the BP oil spill returned to Queen Bess. How did Queen Bess, uh, fare during the storm? Yeah, well, so that is one of the bright spots in all this. So again, you know, being recently restored, uh, just this, you know, the, the project was completed this, this past February, it actually held up really well. Um, so what I've heard from Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries is that there was some overwash and some inundation of nests, um, but probably not more than 25 to 33%. Um, so, you know, before the storm, there were thousands of brown pelicans nesting out, out there, an estimate of 8,000 nests. Um, and of course, you know, tricolored herons and egrets and all kinds of birds, roseate spoonbills are nesting out there. So tons and tons of birds. And it, it actually fared quite well. Um, it was high enough. Um, it held together. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think we'll see a lot of baby birds coming out of queen pest this year. So that's really exciting. That's good to hear. I, I did hear from um, one of the landowners that the bird's predator, the alligators, were also impacted. It's it's egg-laying season for them, and the high water yep. um, certainly impacted them as well. So, yep. well, Eric, it's always such a treat to have you on. You're always so knowledgeable and teach us so many things about um, how we can be better birders, um, better beachgoers. And so thank you for ending uh, also on a positive note related to Queen Bass. So um, well, enjoy the rest of your summer, Eric. We hope Hope to have you on again soon. You too. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And we have more when we come back from Delta Dispatches, talking about more birds, of course. Um, we'll be right back.
From the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. News for the pelagic-minded. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Laws with Restore or Retreat. And we are so excited to have another member of the Audubon family, first time guest, although we did air his conversation with Oliver Thomas as a bonus episode um, on Delta Dispatches, but I think this is our first time actually having him on. Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Charles Allen, Community Engagement Director with National Audubon Society. Good morning. How are you all today? Hi, doing Charles. Doing well, Charles. How have you been doing? How are, how's your family and everyone doing uh, through these months of, of stay at home? Thankfully, we're all doing well. No complaints, no symptoms. So we are blessed. <laughs> how are you all? <laughs> you know, I think uh, we're hanging in there. And each week, Simone and I like get a little bit better at trying to figure <laughs> out how we can do this from home. So I think you've, you've caught us at a time when we've worked out the kinks. So, um, so Charles... You've been with um, Audubon and uh, Restore the Mississippi River Delta for a few years now. Tell us a little bit about your role and and kind of what you do um, with our organizations. Sure. So actually, this month makes two years that I've been with you all, and it's been a pleasure. Um, My role in recent months and over the last year have really focused uh, or become more focused, I should say, on this whole effort around diversity, equity, inclusion. Jacques, as you know, because when I came on board, I heard about how you participated in one of Audubon's workshops up in Hog Island, Maine, where, of course, select staff members were invited to these very important conversations about how we deal with racism and all the negativisms in our country and, and, and frankly, in the world, because it's a problem everywhere. And so in recent months, as you know, um, in fact, you all know because you're a part of this effort. We've been really working internally on developing a strategy going forward that will guide our work and give it more sensitivity, you might say, to the issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Now, you know, we say all the time, um, it's not always, it's not important to just be diverse. It's about how you use the diversity. It's, It's not about, you know, bring in a diverse array of people to an event, but do you play their music? Do you encourage them to do their kind of dance? You know, are are we just allowing folks to just stand on the wall or stand on the sidelines and just watch others as we enjoy? And so the work is about really being thoughtful in that regard, making certain that what we do at MRD and as relates to all the different organizations that make MRD up that, um, we just are more empathetic and more sensitive to the needs and concerns of the people that we're trying to serve. So in a nutshell, that's how it's all come to form and fashion uh, in recent times. Yeah. And Charles, I mean, I think that's a great overview and, and clearly it's um, work that is very important and, and needed, not just within our organizations and on the coast, but, you know, broadly. And, and it's hard to kind of watch what's happening in the world and in our country and and sit back and continue on with our job like everything's normal. So 
I mean, do you mind sharing your thoughts on kind of this moment in time and, and why, regardless of what our job is or what field we're in, we need to work to recognize and uplift the importance of equity, justice, diversity, and inclusion? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm going to tell you, in, in, in recent weeks, as we've witnessed all that we've witnessed unfold in this country and in this world, uh, the deaths uh, as it relates to Black people, um, unjust, unjustified deaths. I have tried desperately to find a spiritual foundation or to even get more grounded in the spiritual foundation that I've, I've come to develop in recent years. I think we are, like Malcolm X once said, we are coming to a point where we just have to deal with the chickens that are coming home to roost, okay? We have to stop kicking this can down the road. We got to have these tough conversations. My great grandmother used to say years ago, she said, son, just keep in mind always that in desperate times, people step out of character. So we got to understand better everyone's desperation, especially the desperation as it relates to black people, people of color, gay people, any people who have been marginalized. And we, we know we know what that feels like. Let's face it, we all can relate to being marginalized at some point in path, in some point in time. You know, my great gremlins to also say we need to all get in touch with the vulnerable sides of ourselves and all get in touch with our color. You know, there's no pure group of people. Race is has been and still is a very fictitious construct, a construct that was put in place to keep us divided. I mean, I am so thankful and grateful that the Supreme Court yesterday ruled in the way in which it did, that a gay couple can get married on a weekend and still keep their jobs on Monday or Tuesday. Okay? That's momentous. Yeah, we're we're called to being or called to be rather more empathetic, more about seeing ourselves in one another in order to understand one another, so. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's still so much, um, you know, even seeing signs of progress and hope and, and the, um, you know, awareness that's coming in some ways, um, you know, there's just, we're reminded of how much more work we have to do. And I wonder if you could share your thoughts with folks who might be wondering, seeing this, sitting back and, and saying like, okay, well, what can I do? What is there, what can I do to kind of help bring about a more equitable and just world? Sure, sure. Well, you know, one thing I want to offer is, um, and I, as a black man, I have to do more of this my own self, okay? I realize I've walked in a certain set of shoes for my nearly 47 years on this earth, but I even have to stop and learn and listen more about what are the complicated experiences that other people come from? What are the complicated experiences that some white people come from, that gay people come from, that women come from, okay? If I'm going to be a better ally in trying to, and a better friend in trying to understand and, adv and advance whatever causes and address whatever concerns they have. So we got to each step back and just stop be quiet, don't be so quick to talk, and just do our own research, our own studies into one another, listen better to one another, and listen more to one another, and then ask the questions of, okay, you know, well, 
how can I help? I don't want to just assume that I have all the answers. You tell me, you know, you know, if I feel like Jacques, I, I heard that you may need my assistance. I'm going to come to you first and say, look, do you even want my help? I'm here to help. But bruh, you tell me if you really don't want me and I'll go away because <laughs> at the end of the day, we want to do this right. And, and then also just accept the fact that we're going to make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. None of us are perfect. But let's be willing to apologize to one another, to mean it, to, to have it be heartfelt. And then, of course, learn from our mistakes as we try to go, as we try to go about down the path of forgiveness. So, Yeah, well, thank you so much, Charles, for sharing that. I mean, it's interesting that in some ways, you know, with social media and other platforms, it's become easier than ever to share your opinion and share your thoughts. But I like what you're saying about, you know, maybe now is the time to sit back and listen and observe and learn um, rather than rushing to to kind of share um, what needs to happen or share your opinion. So there's a lot more we want to get to in our next segment. Um, Audubon has been doing a lot to speak about the the Black experience, Black birder experience, and, and do a lot to educate its community and others. I also want to get into your background, Charles. Um, you've had a lot of very interesting roles with the city of New Orleans. You helped found an organization that's doing a lot of great work. Um, you know, in our communities, as well as on Louisiana's coast. So we're going to get all to that in the next segment. But we're talking with Charles Allen, Community Engagement Director with the National Audubon Society, and you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We'll be right back after the break. You're on the ASPN Network. Coastal news for the pelagic-minded. we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Laws with Restore or Retreat, and I have the Coastal Stat of the Week. It's from Tristan Barrick's article in the Times-Picayune, New Orleans Advocate, about Grand Isle. Grand Isle is a sandy slip of the Jefferson Parish, of Jefferson Parish sandwiched between Barataria Bay and the tur- turbulent Gulf of Mexico. It's part of a chain of barrier islands that serve as Louisiana's first line of defense against storm surges. The federal government, state, and parish have poured millions of dollars into its defense because it sits directly south of New Orleans, protecting it and wetlands in Jefferson, Lafourche, and Plaquemines Parish. The state's only inhabited barrier island, Grand Isle, has about 1,400 permanent residents in one snowball stand, but its population can sometimes triple during the weekends and summers when vacation homes fill it up. That's a nice little reminder about the importance of Grand Isle. So um, Tristan Bark did have an a article on Grand Isle and, and how it weathered um, during Cristobal that you can check out. But we have with us Charles Allen, um, first time guest on the show, although we've, we've featured him before differently. Um, Charles, I have to say, we talked about this during the break, but I en- enjoyed listening to the last segment. Um, but I, I want to remind folks about your background. You are no stranger to the community and and different kinds of engagement opportunities. Um, You founded a nonprofit. You were part of the city. Why don't you tell people a little bit about your backgrounds here in the community? Sure. So uh, first and foremost, I got a background in public health with a concentration in environmental policy. And for nearly the first 12 years of my career, I worked in academia at Tulane University, 
where I worked at a center known as the Tulane Xavier Center for Bioenvironmental Research. And one focus of my work was on involving uh, African-American students of Xavier University in academic research at Tulane. And it was all focused on how to pipeline and provide a path for those students into graduate studies, be it Tulane or elsewhere. And then after my stint there, I went on to City Hall, where I used to work in the, um, the administration of former Mayor Mitch Landrieu. I initially came on board as his advisor on environmental affairs, with a particular focus on coastal affairs. And I used to direct the office of that same name. And then as the years went on in his administrations, we then transitioned that office into what became the city's office of resilience and sustainability. And in that context, there was a much more of a heavy focus on how do we provide for and make investments in the city that make the city more energy efficient, more resilient and sustainable over time. Um, and a lot of that work dealt with, you know, the implementation of various water management projects in the city. Because as we know, and as we were reminded last week with the heavy rain we had here, <laughs> street flooding is gonna be with us, you know? But we still have, you know, ample green spaces and opportunities to properly uh, detain, retain, and let that water slowly flow back into the underground water table. And then, of course, as you know, I'm now with you all um, at the MRD and at Audubon. Um, and I should also point out, um, <laughs> going back nearly 15 years ago, um, and in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, I helped to establish a nonprofit down in Lower Nine called the Lower Nine Center for Sustainable Engagement and Development. That all came out of um, concerted efforts and a lot of work during that time of trying to help neighborhoods become more viable after learning the tough lessons of Katrina. And our particular focus was on how can we bounce back Lower Nine in a much more energy efficient and sustainable uh, fashion. And so that nonprofit is still in existence. As you know, Simone, it's headed up by Arthur Johnson, our good friend. And, um, and now, given COVID-19, we're trying to see how can we address people's needs and their knowledge and awareness around this pandemic and, this, and, and how to properly deal with that in terms of personal responsibility. So it's not, it's not been a dull moment, Simone. <laughs> <laughs> I think Arthur tries to take um, either my job or Jacques' job. He would be an excellent um, co-host for us. He does a really good job there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So, Charles, um, thinking about, you know, all of the, the work that you've been doing and, and the National Audubon Society have been doing in this moment to really you know, like you said, allow people to sit back, learn, listen about the experiences of Black people. Um, you all hosted Black Birders Week and, and as well, which included a conversation, Birding While Black, a candid conversation um, featuring a number of Black leaders, including Christian Cooper, who, you know, folks may uh, recognize was a man who was harassed um, in Central Park for being a Black man and birding. Um, so, you know, it's a very important moment and important, like you said in our prior segment, to sit back and listen and learn from these experiences. So tell us about Black Birders Week. Tell us about that conversation and tell us about what Audubon has been doing to put those stories forward. Sure. So Black Birders Week was basically an effort that began back on May 31st 
ran for about a week, and it was aimed at just amplifying, of course, black people in the, the enjoyment and experience of birding, but then also you might say highlight uh, the individuals, black individuals in terms of all of their experiences. And that panel, there was a panel program that Audubon hosted in that regard, which as you alluded to, featured uh, various black birders, in particular, Chris Cooper, who serves as the um, one of the advisory board members for the New York City Audubon chapter. And, um, you know, it was about just having a very frank, real conversation around how individuals, in particular black folks, not only enjoy other aspects of life, but we also enjoy the environment and nature as well, and in particular birding, you know. Um, it was also a very thoughtful conversation around what have been some of the steps and actions that the birders who were featured on that panel, they have to do sometimes to make certain they don't draw any negative attention to themselves. Uh, basically, folks who might assume that they're out in the environment, such as the experience of Chris Cooper, and they shouldn't be out in that environment doing whatever they're doing, you know? <laughs> we all know what that's like when, when somebody has like, unjustly made an assumption about you. And so to, to our earlier point around, we just got to stop and not make assumptions about one another, you know, be, be thoughtfully, be respectfully engaging and, um, and understand that we all have similar experiences. We all have similar um, joys in life, you know, birding is not really relegated to any one group of individuals is to be enjoyed by all groups, you know? So yeah, that, it was a very thoughtful conversation and we seem to have gotten some nice feedback from it. And um, yeah, so again, we gotta, we gotta do a better job of seeing ourselves in one another, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's something I've been reflecting on, you know, how much, People take for granted, I can take for granted going on a run even and not having to worry about it, that sort of thing. And so I think it's important to highlight that and that that experience is not um, the same for everyone, even just going birding or being in nature or going on a run. Um, there's a lot that, um, you know, uh, goes into that experience for, for Black people. And so I think that awareness is so important. Um, you can go to National Audubon Society's Facebook page as well as audubon.org to learn more. Um, Charles, we're almost out of time, but we have to ask you our fun question. So real quick, um, I think I, I, what the fun question for you is one we've been asking a lot of folks on this show. What is the best thing you've eaten during this stay-at-home time uh, over the last few months? Oh, my goodness. I think the best thing I've had, <laughs> and I had to break myself down to cook. I went and found um, an old recipe and some of my stuff that I had tucked away in the closet. And I found um, my great-grandmother's old recipe for some really good filet gumbo, some seafood gumbo. And it was about two weekends ago. I just had the urge. I went to Castnet Seafood out here on Hain Boulevard, bought as much shrimp and, and crawfish that I could, could buy in the place. <laughs> and, and I put it in the pot. And let me tell you, Jacques, I was so careful, just as my great-grandma would say, 
so as to not burn the roux. Because, <laughs> you know, if you burn the roux, that's it. You got to start over. And it makes your house <laughs> smell for weeks, by the way. <laughs> oh, God. Don't mention it, honey. Woo, I, I love that. See, that's my type of quarantine cooking. Some people are out here baking sourdough bread. I'm like, no, I'm going to bake grandma's gumbo recipe or something like that. So, well, Great. thank you so much, Charles. It was such a pleasure having you thank on. You, and we definitely want to have you back you. Um, soon. Um, so stay stay safe and at home um, during this time. And we'll have you back on, on, on a future episode. Thanks to everyone for listening and Eric Johnson for joining earlier in the show. This has been another episode of Delta Dispatches and we'll catch you next week. <laughs>